Podcasting is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hey Simon. Hey Simon. Today we are joined by a special guest. Ben Railton is an author and professor of English and American Studies at Fitchburg State University. His new book, Of the I Sing, The Contested History of American Patriotism, is the subject of today's episode. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Ben, can you introduce your book to our audience and perhaps explain the title for those who aren't familiar with the reference? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so of the I Sing is uh, the second book of mine in a row in this particular series called American Ways from Roman and Littlefield. And uh, the goal of the American Ways series is to sort of take a big American concept or idea or thread and trace it across history and connect it to the present moment, both kind of to offer a, a kind of public scholarly overview of some of the histories around a particular concept or set of concepts, and then think about their their legacies, their echoes in the present. Um, on my prior book, We the People, did that with kind of definitions of American identity, competing definitions of who we are. And I see this as kind of a complement, a sequel, but also its own standalone, really important topic on this idea of competing definitions, competing visions of patriotism, of what it means to be an American patriot, to, to owe that kind of allegiance or, or loyalty to, to any nation, but in this case, to America specifically. Um, and the first part of the title of the I Sing is a quote from a pretty early example of a, of a song about those questions of American patriotism, the song, My Country Tis of Thee, which was a, a kind of children's song, or at least a song meant to be sung by children's choirs um, written in the, in the early 19th century, the, the 1830s, um, and which features this line, um, My Country Tis of Thee, a sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Um, and so this, this quick uh, definition of the nation and then this idea of performing that allegiance, performing that celebration, which is one version of patriotism. And so that's why I pulled that as the starting point for this book, thinking about some different versions of that concept. Um, so you mentioned some other versions of patriotism. Can you walk us through the types of patriotism that you're identifying and studying in this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the starting point, really the reason I wanted to explore this was that I think there's one definition, there's one version that is often what we mean when we use the word patriotism, even if we don't say it explicitly or, or even maybe are aware of it. Um, and then there's a second type, which I see as the, as the most destructive one, which I think stems from that first one too often. And then there's a third and fourth that, that I'm arguing are alternatives or other possibilities. So I think what we generally mean, I think the kind of default or the starting point is what I call celebratory patriotism, which is the, uh, the version that's about expressions of, of a celebration of the nation as something ideal, something great, something worth celebrating, often expressed in shared rituals like a national anthem and the standing and singing of it with hand on heart. Um, or a Pledge of Allegiance in the case of the United States, this idea of a, a vision of the greatness of the nation and a, an expression of our celebration of that greatness. And that's kind of the default, I think, a lot of the time. And that version could be inclusive. It could sort of allow everybody to potentially be part of its expressions. But very often, I think that version 
is transformed or has transformed over time into the second type, which is the one that I'm most opposed to or, or criticizing in this project. And that's the type that I call mythic patriotism, which is one that I see as very exclusionary, both in the visions of the nation that it features, the way that it thinks about America and our history and our identity and excluding a lot of communities and cultures and stories from that vision. And then it's also very exclusionary because that mythic patriotism suggests that if you don't 100% take part in the celebration of those very particular visions of America and its greatness, you are unpatriotic, you are treasonous, you are outside of, of those narratives at all. So mythic patriotism, that second type is the one that I see as the most dangerous. And I think it too often is definitely connected to celebratory patriotism. So as a result in this project, I'm trying to also trace the histories and the legacies of, and really argue for as well, a couple of alternatives, a couple of other ways of thinking about patriotism, which I call active and critical. Um, active is the idea of, of a patriotism that everybody sort of can participate in more fully, more actively through things like service or sacrifice or protest or other forms of active um, civic engagement, um, uh, rather than simply maybe passive performance in rituals or celebrations. And then often connected to that and the type that I most fully am arguing for in this book, the fourth type critical patriotism is the idea as well that to be a patriot is to criticize the nation when it fails, falls short of its ideals, um, is flawed, um, makes mistakes, et cetera. And then to do so in an attempt, at least in part to push the nation toward that better version, that more ideal version, the more perfect union that it could be, but perhaps has not yet been. So that critical patriotism, which I think again, too often is seen as not patriotic at all, is the type that I ultimately want to pose as a real alternative to particularly the mythic exclusionary kind. So those four types, celebratory and mythic, kind of on the one hand, in terms of what we often mean, and then active and critical as these alternatives that I hope can open up some real different ways of thinking about what it might mean to be a patriot. Right. The, the mythic exclusionary, for me, when I was reading your book, really aligns with ways that I see myths of American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. I I read American exceptionalism in American history as very exclusionary. Exceptionalism is for a very specific type of American, normally being white middle class, depending on what kind of era it's in. Um, even though it's masked, masked and kind of defined by the values of every American common man can be exceptional and grow up to be president when in reality, like how many presidents do you have in a lifetime versus how many citizens, you know, that kind of like thinly veiled value system that isn't actually accessible to the vast majority of Americans um, in, a, in pretty much any given time and even harder as time moves forward away from the revolution. Um, does that kind of make sense with your mythic exceptionalism or mythic exclusionary or? Yeah, yeah, no, it does. And I think in particular, what I would say is kind of the, the underpinning of a lot of what I'm, I'm trying to argue. And it definitely applies to exceptionalism like it does to patriotism, like it even does to just the phrase or the word American mm -hmm. at all is I think 
for far too much of our history, what has seemed to be, or what has often been treated as the kind of default a vision of those things, the, the, what is presented as a shared understanding or definition is instead a profoundly exclusionary one, a profoundly often white supremacist one, certainly at least a profoundly limited one that leaves out at least as many Americans, often more than it includes. Um, and so a big part of my argument then is that we have to try to reclaim those things. And so I would say that there are other ways to think about perhaps not what is exceptional about America, but at least what is specific or, or particular or worth potentially celebrating, for example, but that that involves kind of reclaiming it, reclaiming that idea from what has become such a, a seemingly shared default kind of narrative or understanding. And I think you're absolutely right. If you think about presidents, for example, and you think about say those pictures at the top, I don't know if this is something the rest of the world has, but in American elementary school classrooms, primary school classrooms, there often are these, these portraits of all the presidents kind of at the top of the wall. Um, I know I had that when I was growing up and my sons still have more recently in elementary schools. And if you think about just what all those presidents looked like other than uh, uh, one or our 44th, um, just you know that vision, that vision of, of that version of the default of the national leader or the symbolic figurehead um, as so particular and so limited compared to the, the community in the country, the, the identity of the country. And so, yeah, I think the default, the, the, the seemingly shared starting point of things like exceptionalism, patriotism, America has very consistently had this thread of, of a white and even white supremacist, white nationalist answer. And a big part of what I'm trying to do is to try to find ways to reclaim alternative definitions of those things that can allow them to be more inclusive, that could allow more of us to feel genuinely connected to them. I wanted to ask, like, how do you think um, active patriotism can be achieved? Because on this podcast, we focused quite heavily on, on some of the parts of your book, um, this whole idea of uh, during the Vietnam War, America, love it or leave it, this this idea that, you know, if you, if you don't want to participate in American exceptionalism, don't want to participate in the Vietnam War, you, you, you should leave, you're not part of the imagined community. But how, how are you able to um, reconcile the myths of American exceptionalism, the actual American exceptionalism, you know, going out and fighting a war? Um, you talk about Lyndon Johnson um, thinking that participating in the US Army during the Vietnam War was a an important thing that if, if, if Americans didn't participate, the nation would be basically cast asunder, but then you have other people pushing against that. How do you re reconcile these forces when they are at, uh, when they are like diametrically opposed? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and a couple uh, layers to an answer come to mind. And then these are things I'd be happy to keep pushing on and talking about, but I would say, I do believe um, you know, the, Howard, the famous Howard's in quote, or I think relatively famous, that dissent is the highest form of patriotism, um, I think has a lot of value to that concept. And so protest for me is an incredibly powerful expression of an act of patriotism, you know, literally taking part in events, marches, being out on the street, being in these in these communal gatherings or protesting in, in digital ways or online ways now. But in any case, I think that's an example, I would argue, certainly in the 60s and very much in our own moment as well of, a, of an opportunity for taking actions and being part of collective actions that 
I would say represent, in fact, some of our true genuine ideals of, of American kind of civic engagement and democracy. And, and part of my goal of tracing that across every time period is to say, there's always been those threads. That's always been a possibility, not of course the only one, but, but a possibility for what it might mean to be a civically engaged American and, and thus a, an active patriot potentially. So I think protest is an example um, and one that of course exists in part because there are these other threads that need protesting. There are these sides that are that are mythic, that are exclusionary, that are like the draft during the Vietnam War that then draft protesters were opposing and, and protesting against. And so I do think that one great form of active patriotism is something like protest and dissent in all of its forms. But then the other thing I would say that gets, that adds, I guess, a complicated layer, but I think it's worth saying, is that at times, while I am entirely anti-war, at times I think military service, not, not so much during Vietnam for sure, but at times has represented a really powerful way for American communities to to reflect this idea of service and sacrifice. And so I talk a lot, for example, about uh, Japanese American soldiers during World War II, um, who even at this moment when they were being so viscerally and destructively excluded by Japanese internment and all the narratives around it, um, offered a different vision, offered a different possibility for, for their, their connection to the nation and to the, the project of that really complicated but important world historical moment. So I do think at times, again, Vietnam is a very different story, but at times I think something like military service can be an expression of an active patriotism, um, even when wars themselves need all the scrutiny that they need. But I would say the most consistent vision of that across American history of active patriotism for me is protest, is, is the idea of taking action to challenge uh, wrongs and injustices, because I think that truly is the most linking American ideal that I would want to make the case for is that goal of pushing towards something better of challenging wrongs and injustices. So I would say both those are layers of active patriotism, but protest to me is the most defining one that I would want to make the case for. And what examples would you, would you have of, a, of this like shared um, patriotism that, that that's active? Because I mean, with the myth of patriotism, you can go back to, say, the, the, the Constitution and the feelings that, you know, African-Americans had that they were not part of this um, for reunion and women. And, you know, the idea that women were going to revolt against the, 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 the ratification of the Constitution, things like that. But how are African-Americans and how are women able to, despite the failings of the American myth and the American and American patriotism, how are they able to find something even within that that they can cling on to as, 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 as a part of their shared heritage almost if they're in opposition to it? And I, and, and I think I see the same thing again with Vietnam is with hippies and with, with yippies and with, with anti-war protesters. Do, do, you, do you get the sense that these kinds of communities on the outskirts of, of um, the imagined community are also appealing to American ideals that are that are well, more widely inclusive or are they trying to create something that's completely different? I would say that they are appealing to something inclusive in the sense that, I mean, a, a couple of thoughts. One, I do pretty consistently try to separate or at least 
um, offer alternatives to thinking about sort of the the government, let's say, or the most kind of official um, uh, symbolic representations of the nation as mm -hmm. as the not only not the only ones, but as the central ones. Um, and so, for example, when it comes to um, say African Americans in that era of the revolution and the and the framing, I've I've long argued that to me, uh, people who I talk about in the revolutionary chapter in this book, like Elizabeth Freeman and Kwok Walker, these enslaved African Americans in Massachusetts who with their allies uh, literally used the language and ideals of the Declaration of Independence and then the Massachusetts State Constitution based on the Declaration to successfully argue for their own freedom mm -hmm. um, from enslavement and then to help abolish slavery in Massachusetts as a result of their victories. To me, those two, Elizabeth Freeman and Kwok Walker, I would call founding uh, parents, founding mother and father of, of this American tradition in a way that I think is much more potentially inclusive than who we usually would call founding fathers or founding mothers or founding Americans, because it's it's about this idea that the ideals and the law should apply to all, should, should be able to be genuinely equal and just as much as they have consistently not been. That's what Freeman and Walker and their cases kind of argued for, that these ideals, these new ideals and these the laws that come with them are ours as well. They belong to us as well, and we're gonna fight to make that clear. And so I think they're an example of a legacy, not just again for say African-Americans, but a legacy for all of Americans of saying it's possible as difficult and fraught and haphazard and partial as it's been for our, our ideals and our laws to, to apply to all, to be connected to all. That's at least, that's the goal. That's the inclusive goal. Um, and they're an example of a, of a kind of founding vision of that. And so then I would say to follow that up, that I think these communities of protest, well, whether it's yuppie, uh, yuppies and hippies, or say the silent sentinels, the suffrage activists around the you know, World War I era, um, it can seem like they're fighting a particular cause against the Vietnam War or for the right to vote uh, for mm -hmm. women, for example. And of course, those are particular contexts. But I think the broader context I would argue for is that they're fighting for this idea that the nation's ideals have consistently fallen short of being extended to all, but that they can and should be. And that it's only when they do get to that point of being more genuinely um, available and, and applicable and connected to all Americans that, that they are achieving their goals, that the, that the nation is what it can be. And so I think those fights are not just specific and they're never to be fringe because they're for that idea that these, these larger narratives either do apply to all or they are falling short, they're failing. Um, they're leaving out there, they're excluding. And so I guess I, I, I think that is both a legacy for particular communities and a model of, of this idea of critical patriotism across all these different examples. That's certainly how I would want to try to define it. Um, just taking a, a, a step back and kind of going over the actual writing of, of the book for yourself, that obviously has, has taken place during the Trump administration and you know, we, we've seen um, what the right like to claim as, as patriotism and th this idea of, um, you know, the, the, the Trump wrapping himself in the flag. And in fact, when Rush Limbaugh died the other day, we had people on the right claiming, you know, he, he was a great patriot and this kind of thing. And then on, on the opposition to that, you had the the right coming down very heavy on people like Colin Kaepernick who you know kneeling for the national anthem and you know these people are disrespecting the flag and disrespecting the troops how much did the atmosphere and the climate of what's happening today um impact your writing of this book 
a lot. Uh, I've been thinking about this idea of, of critical patriotism in particular for a long time. I first started to kind of write about that almost a decade ago now, 2012 or so, was the first time that I began to try to kind of think about uh, this idea of an alternative vision of patriotism that I, I started to use that phrase to try to define for myself and then and then to communicate and think about. So it, it predates, but even then, I would say, even then, I would it was inspired very directly by these evolving narratives around I mean, the backlash to the Obama administration mm -hmm. as well, for example, and, and, and all the ways in which he was called a, a traitor and seditious and um, a threat in these various ways. And so even then it was inspired by our current moment in a lot of ways, but then yes, over the last few years, over the years of the Trump administration, it really felt to me like a moment that, echoed and extended and amplified the worst versions of that mythic patriotism, the worst versions of that exclusionary white supremacist version of or definition of American patriotism, um, going e even directly to things like the flag that you're mentioning. The more I've learned about, for example, sort of a hundred years or so ago, the the late 19 teens and, and early 1920s, that was such a central narrative of the mythic patriotism of that era, the Sedition Act, for example, and the idea that it was literally illegal under the Sedition Act to mm -hmm. say anything negative about the flag of the United States. That was one of the clauses in that law passed in 1918. Um, it felt very much like our current mythic patriotism, the Trump era one, was again, returning to and amplifying those worst kinds of moments, those worst versions of not just that, that legacy, but its, its, its presence in laws and policies and the sort of highest levels of, of that expression of a national identity. So yeah, a lot of my, of my work over the last few years has really felt like trying to call out those legacies to better contextualize where we are right now. And again, suggesting there's a reason Colin Kaepernick is on the cover of the book um, that started in 2016 as well, those protests. And that felt to me like exactly, I mean, I don't think there's a, been a more patriotic American over the last five years, to my mind, there's other competitors, but to me, he's at the top of the list, short list of the embodiment of, of how I want to define American patriotism um, is what Kaepernick was trying to do and express and, and represent. Um, and so it was those two things, I guess, seeing the deepening of mythic patriotism and the real resurgence of the kind of most extreme version of it at the highest national levels of, of administration and law and policy and so on. And then seeing these, these really compelling examples of critical patriotic alternatives, and of course, how they were treated and responded to a lot of the time, like Kaepernick, that made me really want to write about both of those threads, I would say. Speaking of those, of, of defining patriotism, um, I noticed that you don't use the word nationalism very frequently mm -hmm. in the book. And I was wondering what, what that decision was because the mythic patriotism shares a lot of qualities with what I think of as American nationalism. Um, and I see nationalism as patriotism as very, very different things. Um, for me, I see patriotism as being proud of what your country is and kind of the values that, that your country holds dear. Like my, my country is great because we are X, Y, and Z um, in terms of our values and morals. Whereas nationalism, I see more as being proud of what your country is not in a lot of ways. Like my country is the greatest 
in the world because we're not socialist or something like that. Um, how does that kind of, does, does nationalism have a place in your understandings of patriotism? And also, does the etymology of, of nationalism, do you think that it's become a bad word or it has no place in your patriotism because of the things that happened in the 1930s or all over the world? Did, did you see um, people like Thomas Paine or um, earlier um, articulators of the patriotism talking about nationalism as if it was patriotism? Yeah, I think both of those are really good questions. And, and I will say it's in talking about this book um, as I was kind of finishing it, but especially over the last year or so that I've been able to talk about it in various settings that I've kept kind of thinking more fully than, than I had about kind of where I would locate nationalism and how I would want to think about it. So these are questions that ideally probably should have been more in the book, and I'm really happy to have the chance to keep talking about them in these kind of spaces, so I appreciate it. And I would say that to me, nationalism, I agree with your definition of it in a lot of ways, Vaughn, and I do think it it is very much connected to the mythic patriotism that I want to define, particularly the exclusionary side, because I agree that I think nationalism very often, um, as I see it, as I define it, is so much about that us versus them, that creation, maybe even more importantly, of the thems, of the things, the nations, the, the identities that we are not, in order to try to make the case for the we, for the us. I think that is a lot of what I want to see as nationalism, that chauvinism, that sense, yes, of, of a greatness of, of the we, but maybe even more importantly, of that, that division from these, these uh, thems that are being attacked, that are being seen as, as a negative. And so I think that really does fit into the exclusionary part of mythic patriotism, of the creation of these narratives of, of the we, but also the, of the thems, of, of, of what is excluded and, and what we are better than in that exclusion, what we are, uh, our greatness, as opposed to that, that distinct uh, lack of greatness in these other, these other entities, these other communities. And so I do think nationalism, as I want to define it, lines up in a lot of ways with the mythic patriotism. I think the reason why I didn't use the term so much was because to me, it has become something by and large that is overtly seen in a lot of conversations anyway, as more of a negative, perhaps because of those associations with, with the 30s and fascism. Whereas patriotism, particularly the one that I want to see is really destructive, that term can be used as if it's a good thing when it's supporting those very destructive views. So I'm sort of purposefully trying to challenge the form of patriotism that I see as the most destructive and divisive and exclusionary, um, and which can cloak itself in a term and a concept that, that many of us want to see as a positive. Whereas I think nationalism is often seen by many of us as more overtly negative, more overtly problematic at least. So I wanted to call the thing that I see as really destructive a form of patriotism because I think it often is, is cloaked that way and perceived that way, um, when it is perhaps, for example, much more like a white nationalism and that exclusionary chauvinistic kind of nationalism at that. So, so yes, I think there's a lot of commonality there. And I do, to go with your question, Toby, I do have a hard time because of all that long century of history and more wanting to reclaim the idea of nationalism. I think it is too fully associated for me with that deeply chauvinistic, deeply us versus them, um, set of narratives that so fully can support fascism in various forms. And I think mythic patriotism is a 
a movement along that spectrum toward that place as well, but one that so often gets cloaked in a concept of patriotism that we often want at least to reclaim. So I think it's worth calling out the worst version of that um, as something that is seen within the spectrum of patriotism, but is the worst version of it that can then start to move toward that nationalist idea, if that makes sense. But don't you, th don't you oh, think that the, the sort of celebratory um, patriotism that uh, comes out in the, in the works of um, Th Thomas Paine and in you know, the, the early revolutionary period where there was an enemy, don't you think that that drifts into some sense of nationalism because there's an opposition, you're defining yourself against other people and what they are, they are not, not and what you are and, and how, how you defeat them? Yes, yes, I do. Um, and I think, you know, part of what makes the revolutionary period so distinct in some ways across my like my eight historical chapters, let's say, is that all those things were just being formulated, at least in the United States, in this new national space. So it's a little bit different in the sense that there isn't yet a legacy, let's say, of of some of the, the trends that I then want to start to identify. I would say the early republic, for example, is when really my argument would be that sort of mythic white supremacist exclusionary patriotism begins to be fully developed in the context of a lot of related narratives that I trace a bit in that chapter, including things like Manifest Destiny and, and, and its related policies, Indian removal, Jacksonian visions, et cetera. So yes, I think the revolution is a moment where so much is, is just being um, constructed and debated that, that it is possible to see these uh, all these terms as less fully sort of solidified and, and thus that celebratory patriotism in that moment, in a, a moment of revolution where it was necessary, as you say, to separate from this them, um, in that case, most specifically England, um, does fit more with a nationalism that perhaps I would say is not necessarily white supremacist or exclusionary in that way, but could be seen as national in the sense of even establishing that we, trying to create that we. But the other thing I would say about that then is even in that era, and I try to make this case in that chapter, even in that era, if we, if we too fully just sort of agree with that one vision, understandable as it may be in that revolutionary context, I wanna make the case anyway that loyalists are a community that we have had a really hard time thinking about and that's part of the reason why. But I would say loyalists a lot of the time were not just say pro-England, they were trying to achieve what they saw as best for, for this place, for America, for this group of colonies, for this space. Um, it's just that what they saw as best was, in, in a lot of cases, not the revolution. Um, but they still, I would say, could be called at least a form of, of critical patriots because they were criticizing sort of where the new nation was going out of what they saw as a different set of goals. And so I think even in the revolutionary era, if we too fully sort of go along with, with a particular definition, we lose sight of other American voices who are part of that debate, part of that moment. And the loyalist community are not United States patriots, of course, because they literally sort of didn't support the creation of it. But I think in a lot of cases, they were pushing for the best future they imagined for this place, for this community. So I think they need to be in the conversation too. And that gets a little trickier than just, let's say, the colonies versus England anyway. Um, one question I did just have on the nationalism side of things was that I think it was 2018, Trump declared himself a nationalist at a rally and kind of spoke out and said that maybe it's not cool these days to say these types of things, but I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, I'm, I'm a nationalist. Do you think we are, or America is requiring a, a 
greater conversation on this idea of patriotism obviously your your book is out now do you think do you think there is a need and there is an appetite within america to have that kind of greater discussion on what it means to be a patriot or do you think we are still very much kind of divided on you know the right to see a certain type of american and a certain type of american action as patriotism and then certain actions that might be done by people on the left as sort of anti-american as it were i mean you know yes unfortunately that that latter frame that you that you nicely articulated simon i think is 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 impossible to dismiss as as part of where we are this sense that every one of these terms every one of these ideas whether it's patriotism or even just america feels that it is so not just polarized not just distinct narratives, I'm trying to make the case that that's always been true, but that they sort of live in even different worlds, different universes, uh, that, that it can be so hard to, to talk between, to cross over in any way. I think it's very difficult here in the U.S. for these last few years not to feel that that's the case for sort of each of these, for even the things that might feel the most fundamental, again, phrases or words or ideas like America itself feel so polarized into these these separate bubbles and universes. However, as an American studies public scholar and as an American person, and as someone who tries to remain an optimist, um, even though that feels like it is an endangered species in 2021 here in the US, um, my goal would be to try to find ways, yes, to have the conversations, to think about how can we imagine a way to move forward without, again, having to agree on everything and certainly without having to come down to just one answer or one definition of these things, but to have conversations about how we define them and about what might be shared. And so again, for me, an example of that would be thinking about thinking about ideals of protest, thinking about the idea of not simply accepting the sort of power structure or the dynamics of any particular, you know, powerful single narrative or voice. Um, and then thinking about, okay, if we can grant that, if we can grant that protest in, in ways that are not about harming other people, that are not about you know, illegal activities like coups to overthrow the government, for example, there are, there are limits to these things. But if we can see the idea of, of, of protest in service of pushing the nation towards something better, um, rather than dividing it and destroying it, then th- that can be an example of allowing us to recover the histories of such figures and stories that, again, aren't, aren't partisan. They're not about one vision or another. They're about American stories that are worth recovering. And so as hard as it is, and again, all that first stuff is true right now for me, and I think for all of us in 2021, all that sense of division and separate universes and worlds, part of my lifelong goal anyway is thinking about how do we remember and tell these stories in ways that can potentially offer an offer a vision for a lot of us, not every one of us. There are American voices right now that I I, I don't want to be in conversation with. The most extreme ones on on the on the side of of fascism and 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 the like. But for a large portion of us, is it possible to think about finding those conversation spaces and those potential? ways to move the conversation forward. And so again, the goal to me of reclaiming these histories isn't to say there was a review of the book 
for Publishers Weekly, which was largely positive, but it said toward the end something about like, uh, those on the left will particularly um, enjoy this book. And that was frustrating to me because it can't, I, I, it can't only be that or else we're never gonna have a, a unified community. Um, there has to be the ability to say, what kind of conversations can a lot of us have across our communities um, that can potentially move us forward. And I think this is an example of saying, what are the different legacies of these different ways of thinking about being an American and being patriotic that we can remember, that we can, that we can recover and that we can try to carry forward as a, as a larger community. So that's still a goal, but it feels like an incredibly fraught and threatened one at the moment for me. Well, Vaughn, you're a Republican and you enjoyed the book, didn't you? So that's- uh, <laughs> Yeah, hardcore. Absolutely. I'm not that anymore. You know that, Simon. Um, thinking, I, I have two directions I want to go in right now, and I don't know which one to start with. But, hmm. Go with your gut, Vaughn. That's not helpful. Okay. Um, Pick the second okay. one. Second one. Done. All right. So, um, one, I think, I think this book is an excellent start to the conversation. Um, the way that you separate celebratory and mythic really allows for the conversation to be had with people who might join mythic with celebratory, mm -hmm. who tend to be more on the right. Um, celebratory leads to mythic in a lot of ways. And I think for people of a certain political opinion, it might just all be seen as celebratory, um, the mythic and, mm -hmm. and celebratory together. So the way that you really pick it apart and kind of identify like this action is celebratory and this one is the exclusionary act that followed from it um, is a great way to start the conversation, I think, for a lot of people looking for a way to look at American history more honestly. And with that, um, you, you talk about the 1619 project. Um, you, you mentioned the 1620 project, which I had not, I, I was not aware of that um, until I was reading this. So that was very interesting. And then also the wonderful 1776 commission. Wait, just before the, this, the 1619 project uh, stuff, could, um, I just, this is an aside, but could you, just talk about this this idealized American because you you touched on it before. I know the sixteen nineteen project is 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 really very very contemporary. But just before that, could you talk about the idealized American because that you've you've really used presidents here to do that. Mm -hmm. And I and I I want to get an idea of who is the idealized American and then who is not because you also have like uh, Reagan's welfare queen here. So what is the moral description of an idealized American? And, and you mean, uh, not for me myself, but in that sort of mythic vision? Or so for exactly, me? Yes, right. exactly. Yeah. And then that, that sort of a mythic vision, because right. it, it gets at, you know, who's in the community and, and who isn't in the community and mm -hmm. who's supposed to be held up and who, who, who isn't and, and how they are. And yeah, and I think, and then I, I will make sure to come back around, Vaughn, to what you, you were thinking about too. But yeah, I, I think that you know, interestingly enough and tellingly enough, maybe, 
because I think that idealized American is kind of assembled out of a, a collection of myths in a lot of ways, a collection of, of kind of interrelated myths. Um, and so an example of it, and I think maybe the reason why um, a lot of voices that would support what I would call mythic patriotism have fought for his continued presence on the $20 bill would be somebody like Andrew Jackson um, because of the uh, you know, myths like the self-made man and the sort of rugged individual and, um, and you know, the fighting for the little guy, if the little guy happens to be also you know, sort of white male and probably white supremacist males, um, you know, that collection of myths, those different layers of sort of economic and class and small d democratic kind of mythos of a figure that really gets so deeply associated also with a white male identity and story. Um, and then he layers on some other things like violence, his tendency toward dueling and violence and his um, you know, aggressive refusal to play by rules or compromise, you know, not abiding a Supreme Court decision when it went against his, his favorite policy. I think somebody like Jackson brings together a bunch of different sort of mythic ideals that at times could feel inclusive, um, you know, like, you know, uh, started from nothing, you know, now I'm at the top, that sort of narrative, but in practice have been so consistently white supremacist, have been so tied to white identity and often white male identity, um, which Jackson also really embodies through so many of those characteristics of his and, and of his, his story and, and career. So I think he's a great example. I think he's a really telling example of a sort of collection of, of these mythic narratives that form this kind of idealized representation of, of this exclusionary uh, a mythic patriotic narrative of, of an American identity. And I think it's that that really has made him continue to be someone you know worth fighting for from that perspective when it would seem like he would be the easiest currency figure to jettison. He's still a president, um, but, but I think he's really representative of the collection of these myths, the collection of these different idealized narratives, which again, all, all add up to something very deeply exclusionary and white supremacist, even if each of them has a complicated individual kind of development or context. So I think he's someone who comes to mind for me as, as really connecting to that. Now, if you wanna you go in a different direction that isn't as blatantly white supremacist, um, and, and still might fit that bill, I think you could look at, I, I, I keep going to presidents, I apologize, but I do think they're, they're, they're representative in a lot of ways. And I think somebody like George Washington is a great example of, again, without as much blatant white supremacy didn't create a policy of you know, removing uh, millions of fellow Americans explicitly as, as president, for example, but ties together so many of these different mythos, so many of these different narratives of, of American ideals within that very particular frame, and yet can only do that if we mask over things like the way that he you know, treated and pursued and, and continued to enslave all of his enslaved people, for example, and, and the way that he engaged with Native peoples earlier in his career um, as well. So I, I think the idealized visions are often these kind of symbolic leader figures in whom all these myths are assembled and who then can, can stand for that sort of mythic patriotic ideal as these figureheads, as these kind of Mount Rushmore type you know, uh, faces of, that, of those narratives. And you have in here um, Theodore Roosevelt, who's mm -hmm. someone who stands as, you know, he wrote about the West. Um, he was a very sort of, uh, you know, this, this idea of being in the arena, the, the idealized American 
that he tried to evoke and tried to display and tried to make the nation himself almost. But then he also has this idea of the new nationalism mm-hmm. where he extends, you know, Americans, not just as rugged, rugged individuals, but America as a community with some communitarian ideals of, you know, of uh, sharing and, and people who were poor being made better off and the better off, you know, um, having some obligation to society and then the, the increasing the, the strength of the, uh, the, of the government. So in this uh, idea of, of patriotism, is there a sense that it's not just that the, the, the Americans love their country, but there's their idea of the, the, the sense that the country has something to offer them beyond negative rights as well? Because then you go, uh, you also touch on in the 1980s where you actually have, you know, these yuppies and, you know, they have, um, they're free, they have a bunch of ne- uh, negative rights, but then the people who are excluded are, you know, African-Americans, uh, you know, Reagan talks about the welfare queen. So do you have a, a patriotism that's both martial, both um, critical, but also offers the individual a share of the community's resources, almost? Um, I mean, you know, I, I think that Again, if we start with the idea that that so many of the critical patriots who I highlight have fought for, the idea of, of a kind of equality under the law, equality under the nation's ideals, a sense that they genuinely should be applied to and, 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 and meaningful for all Americans. I think if that, can, if that ideal can be pushed toward and achieved, then, and, 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 and obviously there are separate conversations to be had about economics and, and class and, and, and work and so on. But I do think w- under that frame, it would then become more possible for the nation to work better for most of its inhabitants, to, to, for it to offer more genuine possibility of, of not just, again, sort of legal equality then or, 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 or genuine political representation, but the possibility of, of being more genuinely part of the national community for so many who have been so excluded in so many different moments and ways. So to me, that's where it starts. And I know you can sort of have different emphases or different hierarchies, but to me, a lot of what critical patriots have fought for is that idea that the laws and the ideals as started with these founding documents in their most idealized visions should be genuinely communal genuinely shared. And if that's true, if that can happen, it never has. But if it can, then a lot can follow from that about what the nation can mean for all those who are part of it, as well as what they can offer it or, or, or contribute to it. That's kind of where I would start. And I think that's a lot of what, again, in a lot of different ways, critical patriots have tried to fight for is that sense of what would it mean if, if these ideals of, say, equality under the law were genuinely fought for and achieved? Uh, Vaughn, do you want to circle back to your original question? Yeah. Um, let me remember what I I'm think talking. we were talking about 16, the 1690, and then you were talking about... Right, your, okay. Your so, um, thinking about education and the kind of emphasis through American history on civic engagement and civic education... Um, especially in the Reagan years, there was a huge emphasis on like teaching the kids how to be Americans in quotes. Um, 
And recently we've had all of these different types of structures of American history being the 1619 Project, 1620 and 1776. Um, could you talk about each of those a little bit, just a sentence or two um, about what they are and then how that kind of fits into this importance of civic education and how one or more of them may be very dangerous if it is um, adopted, let's say. Sure, yeah, and and I think um, you know it might seem right now, both with the the Biden administration, you know, dismantling the 1776 Commission. And I think the reason why you hadn't really heard about the 1621 is that that project, which was the Federalist magazine, um, it, it never really got off the ground fully. So it might feel like a moment where, where some of those, those alternatives and maybe the threats that they pose that I'll say more about in a second, it might seem that we are past them. But I don't think we are. And, and even if they're not called these things, these narratives and, and, and these educational um, ideas and, and potential policies are still very much present. And so I think they are still well worth our engagement, even if it might feel like the, the, the latter two, 1620, 1776, are, are, are passe right now. The ideas behind them, the narratives, the potential policies, et cetera, are not at all past or passe. Mm -hmm. So basically, I think the simplest way for me to put it is that 1620, that project, that idea of celebrating that really fully as an American origin point, which was what the Federalist magazine was, was trying to, to, to promote. Um, that's the really explicit version of a kind of exclusionary mythic patriotism because the entire point of the project was to say that the Plymouth pilgrims, that, that Puritan community are the American origin. That's where it all starts. And in so doing, they very literally excluded from every part of their description and ideas, all the indigenous peoples, for example, uh, that those communities encountered, the Wampanoag, the Pequot, the Narragansett, et cetera, um, and then more broadly, the idea of indigenous communities in that 17th century American moment. So that's an example, that project was an example of a sort of purposeful mythic patriotism, purposefully exclusionary, purposely white supremacist. Let's only look at this, this one white English community as, as the only starting point. And that has its own dangers, but it's also relatively transparent in those dangers, I think. To me, the 1776 project is, was, and the ideas behind it remain much more sort of insidiously the mythic patriotism because the explicit emphasis there is just on seeing the Declaration of Independence as a founding American moment. And the argument there was in contrast or at least in, in debate with the 1619 project, this, this New York Times Magazine project and now set of educational resources and, and, and texts wanting to say that the arrival of the first enslaved Africans is a important American origin point. Um, and, and in fact can be seen as a, as a starting point for, for many, many continuing American histories and legacies. So 1776 seems to be just saying, okay, but we also have to make sure we look at, at the declaration and 1776 as a, as a point of origin for the nation that feels on the surface like it is potentially inclusive, like it can affect all Americans again, and this idea of, of the ideals and the laws applying to all Americans, et cetera. But if we look at the way the 1776 commission was developed and argued for, the text of it when it was released back in January, every piece of it, what it does instead is 
entirely replicate not only a mythic patriotic vision of the American past, leaving out all sorts of communities or defining them as, as, as outside of the American project, including like progressives, for example, were defined as outside of the American project in the 1776 commission. But even more importantly than that, it's precisely what you were saying, Vaughn. It's this idea that to teach American school children, for example, to teach any Americans, any narrative that is not entirely celebratory, that is not entirely about idolizing the framers and that moment is to perform what Trump called when he announced the commission, a form of child abuse. Um, that was what he called teaching things like anti-racism or the 1619 project. And the text and the policies and the ideas behind the 1776 commission made exactly the same case that it's not simply about remembering this one moment, it's that doing so in any way that isn't entirely celebratory and thus remembering any other histories in equal ways like say 1619 and the legacies of racism and slavery is not only un-American, not only anti-American, but is child abuse, is the worst thing that could be done in educational settings or for our kids. So the reason I think 1776 is so dangerous is that it looks to be, again, this kind of narrative of patriotism that can be shared. It looks to be the celebratory vision, but what it masks is instead, or not even masks, it's present, it's just you have to read it and see what's being said and detailed, is that it is fully the mythic version, the exclusion of communities, the description of anything other than pure celebration as, as the worst possibilities of what can be done, um, and thus a vision of education that would reduce it to solely propaganda, to solely that mythic embrace. Um, and so I think 1776 is the real danger because it does imagine education as this vehicle for only that mythic patriotic propaganda um, if it's going to not be child abuse, if it's going to not be the worst thing it could possibly be. I hate that thing so fucking much. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it so much. I awful. spent 10 hours going through that thing just line by line. It's, I don't think I've gotten a chance to rant about this on the podcast, <laughs> actually. But that is on our website, a line by line of everything that's absolutely wrong with the 1776 commission, if anyone's interested in that. It's just <laughs> abysmal. It is one of the most disgusting, just, it's completely fascist in mm -hmm. every single way. And it, it calls fascism and communism ideological cousins, <laughs> and then equates American educators with violent communists. Oh my God, it's the Oh, I hate it so much. Well said. No, I'm done. Okay, sorry. I was just going to make a joke and say that it's just a coincidence that Vaughn is both a, a, commun a violent communist and an educator. My <laughs> supervisor made that joke too. <laughs> <laughs> you seem a, a not, a, not violent. <laughs> no. Forthright. Yes, thank you, Simon. Yes. No. But um, just, to say, just to say one more quick yeah. thing then about about um, 1776, about that moment. Like, you know, to me, part of the problem here is, again, how much we all, it seems, sort of in our collective narratives, buy into the idea, buy into the default definition of a lot of these things. So, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been a little more attention finally paid, thanks mainly to Erica Dunbar's wonderful book, Never Caught, to the, the woman Ona Judge who was enslaved by George Washington and, and ran away while he was president in Philadelphia. Um, and while he was you know, instituting these policies to keep his enslaved people enslaved 
even in Pennsylvania, which at the time no longer had legal slavery. Um, and so she runs away from that and he spends the rest of his life trying to capture her, but never succeeds. She dies um, free, if, if still, of course, endangered in New Hampshire many, a couple decades later. Like, why cannot Ona Judge then be an iconic American revolutionary, right? There's no reason not to define her that way. Not to say, if we're gonna teach a patriotic narrative of the American Revolution, she should be a key figure in it because she achieves everything that that revolution is, is about in freedom and in liberty and in, in individual rights in pursuing one's, you know, the pursuit of happiness, all those narratives um, she embodies. And so, but we only remember her if we remember that Washington was a slave owner among other things in his life. And so again, it's just, it's the only way to see teaching, let's say own a judge's story and slavery and its relationship to Washington. The only way to see that as unpatriotic is if we all are just buying into that patriotism means only celebrating somebody like Washington. Um, so like that to me is the ultimate problem with that is that it just leaves out the best American stories, the most ideal American stories and Ona Judge is such a wonderful example that all Americans should be able to celebrate equally um, within every vision of our ideals. If you're not just blatantly a racist, um, within every other vision of her ideals, she she meets them. So just to add that quick. No, I agree with you entirely. And what kind of tangential to that, in the 1776 report, they have a section on um, race and racism that is displaced from the section on slavery. They're, they deliberately put a whole section in between it so that you kind of dissociate slavery from racism, which, mm -hmm good on them, great. Um, but in, in the slavery section rather, the only kind of comments are people say that Thomas Jefferson had slaves, but actually he was against it. And that's the whole conversation is just like the founding fathers didn't actually believe in slavery even though they had slaves. And it's like, what the fuck kind of defense is that? That's like, oh my God, ooh. I'm sorry, I'm getting real heated about this. That's okay, Paul. If you're, if you're not allowed to be heated again when you're speaking out against slavery, I'm not sure what you are allowed to be heated. Yeah, fair. Um, yeah, I, was, I was just going to say, we're at the hour mark now. Is there any specific questions left that we want to, to, to ask either about specifically about the book or anything that's come up in our conversation? Um, I did want to circle back to... Um, if we're talking about education as a way of kind of teaching the like civic education as a way of teaching how to be a citizen of America and be a patriotic citizen, all of that stuff. Um, I think that also extends to the media that is shown to children and citizens in America, teaching them how to be Americans. Um, and if you'll indulge me, I want to talk about film because mm -hmm. that's my whole jam mm -hmm. and particularly patriotism in film. Um, so I know best around film with the post-war period um, for no particular reason. But my kind of thought is um, circling back to what you said about Andrew Jackson as a kind of idealized American figure. That is a very popular trope in populist cinema from the 30s to the 40s. 
um, that either Andrew Jackson or Abraham Lincoln are the, the examples of what it is to be an American common man. Mm -hmm. And in popular cinema, whenever the um, main character is kind of like down on himself and needs, some re needs to be re-inspired about his American ideals, let's take Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, for example, um, Jimmy Stewart like walks around DC and nothing's really working. And then he stops in front of the Lincoln Memorial and he suddenly becomes reinvigorated and does the filibuster, saves the day, all of that jazz. So in film and thinking about these idealized figures, how do you think patriotism is kind of portrayed in any period? It doesn't have to be post-war or war. Um, if you want to compare across some of them. But how is patriotism kind of either overtly or not overtly figured into these films for you? And is that a, that's a leading question. Is that a dangerous thing? Um, and odd to think about a time when the filibuster was a, uh, was worth celebrating, right? Mm -hmm. Very different yeah. era. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the time, I think the, the cinematic representations of patriotism that I'm familiar with anyway, do fall in that borderline area between celebratory merging into mythic um, in the ways that it can be dangerous. And, and I think a lot of that is because of, of the, the role in say war films um, and, and and ones that really overtly, like I talk about the film, The Green Berets, the John Wayne film in my 60s chapter in this book. And, and that's a film that is, is a real clear vision of, of that kind of mythic patriotism where, you know, the one guy who's a kind of anti-war journalist early in the film, the protagonist in a lot of ways, who ends up being converted to John Wayne's gung-ho uh, militarism and his mythic patriotism, I would say, you know, his arc is a, is a representation of that vision of patriotism, of, of learning what it really means to be an American patriot. And, and then I think you can see versions of that play out in a lot of other films as well. One that I've talked about in different settings, including I think in the 80s chapter a bit is, um, yeah, I do, is Red Dawn, that, the, the, that classic of, of 1980s uh, over the top action schlock, um, which, which again has a similar sort of arc of what the young protagonists have to learn about what it means to fight for this place against its enemies. Um, and so I think that is a dominant narrative. And you can even see that in something like The Patriot, the Mel Gibson film about the revolution, where he too, he's opposed at first, he's, he's conflicted, he did, but gradually because of you know, the horrors of the, of the English, sorry, and, the, um, and his own you know, sort of realizations comes to be this iconic fighter for this, for this new place. And so I think that narrative, the narrative of the conversion of a kind of uncertain, conflicted protagonist to kind of rah-rah, seemingly celebratory, but often very explicitly mythic narratives of patriotism is a pretty consistent thread across a lot of films that I would call patriotic or trying to engage with ideas of patriotism. However, I guess I would also wanna make the case for alternatives and for films that posit alternatives. And so I've talked in a lot of other settings, for example, about the movie Glory um, which I really, really love. And one of the reasons I love it, besides that it did help with the recovery of the US color troops, uh, histories that have been so under-remembered and told and still are 
but much more so prior to that 1989 film. Um, but besides just that recovery and besides a lot of other things that I, I really like about that film, I think just to reflect on a community who, who still fit many of those same bills. It's a, it's a war story. It's a military story. They're, they're, they're sort of learning what it means to be heroes in that setting and to sacrifice for a greater good. But the greater good that they're sacrificing for is not just the nation and its ideals, but not really that at all, right? It's each other and it's a vision of their own, their own fundamental humanity and, and identities as worth worth defending in the face of, of all that has attacked them and continues to attack them. So there's that beautiful scene before the final battle in glory um, uh, where they are kind of for the most communal time in the movie together in this prayer song session. It's really just about that idea that this is this American community who are, who are men as they put it, who are, who are heroes, who are worth, who are worth that full vision of their, again, their shared equality under the ideals of America, as, as anyone could be, as any community could be. I think that film ultimately, without, without having to say it that blatantly most of the time, makes that case for them, for the U.S. colored troops, for African-American history as centrally American history um, in a way that we still need to make the case for uh, far too much of the time, um, but, but we need to make the case for. And so I think there are alternatives. There are visions of patriotism of, of American stories that even within the frame of war stories, for example, can make this alternative case. And then there are more critical stories too. You know, that's still one that's more, I would say, a combo of sort of celebratory and active patriotism in at least some ways. Although Denzel Washington's character is very critical and he's a kind of voice for that community. But then there are more fully critical voices, critical stories um, that are also well worth hearing and, and adding into that mix. Um, and I've talked in various settings about uh, John Sayles, my favorite filmmaker and the way in which a lot of his stories, I think, are, are great representations of what I would call critical patriotism, really trying to highlight the myths and, and, and criticize them, um, but still ultimately making the case for a different vision um, of, of things like American community, even in the face of those most destructive myths, something like Mate One, the movie about the 1920s, um, coal mining wars in West Virginia um, depicts the destructive myths at their at their fullest through the government agents, the Pinkertons, the corporations, the narratives of division, the narratives of white supremacy um, that seek to tear apart communities like the African-American workers and the immigrant workers, for example, in that film. But at the end, despite the kind of horrors and tragedies, there's a representation of community that those various other communities kind of find together and model in their protest, in their activism, in their refusal to give in to those negative, divisive, mythic narratives that that film is, is a sort of case for by retelling that history, by remembering that history. So I think there are film representations of different versions of patriotism. Um, if the dominant thread still in a lot of ways has been that sort of mythic kind that we see in a lot of those kind of rah-rah, particularly war films. Another question I'd like to ask is, in times of tumult, uh, say, you know, after the Civil War and Reconstruction, there seems to be a dominant political force that asserts itself at the end of that period and then asserts an, a new kind of patriotism. You also find it in the 1960s. You, there's this tumultuous period, but then you get the schmaltzy Green Beret stuff, you get Deer Hunter, you get Morning America, and the silent majority asserts another vision of patriotism in films like Top Gun and 
Ghostbusters and uh, Wall Street. But right now, where we are in another period of that kind of tumultuous, you know, idea of in two different sides or two different ideas of patriotism, do you see that today a dominant side can win and assert itself and assert whether it be a more critical idea of patriotism or, or more mythic and celebratory idea of patriotism, or is it just too difficult today? Yeah, I mean, because there are just so many, even if we just think about film or media, multimedia landscapes, because there's so much, there's so many, you know, places where they can be created and shared and consumed. It feels like I was saying earlier about the culture overall, so fragmented and so able to be compartmentalized. Um, and I don't know, I can't off the top of my head say that like, you know, the the left is Netflix and the right is Hulu or something. I don't think it works that way. I don't think the services break down, but it's just so compartmentalized. It's so fragmented and so much that it does feel difficult for any particular strain to, to be dominant in maybe some of those past ways or some of those past emphases. However, I would say that this does feel like a moment where over the last you know, decade and certainly over the last half decade or so where d- diverse voices, diverse artists, diverse creators, diverse kinds of stories are maybe in part because of that multiplicity and that breadth of available possibilities are coming to be created more consistently and certainly maybe be able to find audiences more fully. Something like Glory as a, as a historical film centered on, on the African-American experience was pretty singular in 1989. Um, it was the year of driving Miss Daisy, if we want to call that that, but that's something very different to be sure. Um, and then over the last few years, such historical films have exploded and there's many more um, being released uh, this year, including the film version of Passing that's about to come out that I'm super excited for. And so I think, I do think if there is a dominant trend right now, and I think it's very hard as I'm saying with everything, but if there is a dominant trend, I do think it is the possibility of more and more diverse voices and stories being a part of the mix. Now, you know, how much audience they do or don't find or how splintered things remain is its own question. But I I do think that that's happening. And I think there's real value to that because it makes it so much harder to fall back on just particular mythic visions, right? That even ones that seem positive, like the, the magical Negro sort of trope that something like Driving Miss Daisy played into. And that was challenged in 89 by a film like Glory. But again, those are only two movies. Now, if there were such stories, and there certainly are, they're challenged by so many other stories and voices and texts and artists that there's just a lot more possibility for capturing our diverse histories and our diverse stories more fully. So I think that is a a potential dominant trend is just that diversity. Again, that then requires us to keep highlighting these things and sharing them and being aware of them. But they're happening. They're out there. And I think that's a real significant trend to me. Uh, one question I, I had for you, Ben, was um, we kind of touched on a little bit around the, the 80s and a couple of questions there. And uh, last year on the show, we did a trilogy of episodes on Ronald Reagan, much to Vaughn's excitement. Um, <laughs> we, in the episodes, we, we kind of touched upon the, this, this idea of, you know, Reagan kind of reinvigorating America to some extent after, you know, the, the Vietnam years and post-Watergate and uh the jimmy carter presidency and that kind of thing and then we also touched upon this idea of him kind of winning as far as being able to 
his idea of America, you know, this idea of sort of lower taxation and lower involvement for um, the government and everybody, everybody's life kind of been almost the default position for America moving forward. And then you get into, you know, the Clinton years and, you know, the, the year of big government is over and all that kind of thing. So I, I was kind of curious what your th- thoughts are on how Reagan redefined American patriotism and what it was what it meant to be a patriot kind of in the Reagan years and then moving after Reagan as well and especially I suppose in the context of of the fact that we America was just getting over Vietnam during that time as well yeah I do think I do think it was a moment when that that return to a sort of celebratory narrative that the phrase morning in America, although as I kind of fully discovered when I was researching that chapter more, I always associated that with 1980. That was more 84, I guess. Mm-hmm. But even if the phrase was created halfway through his presidency, I think it, it captures at least part of what sort of he tried to offer, what, what that, that narrative tried to, to contribute as, as that possible shift and that possible pushback. And, and, um, and it was a kind of make America great again idea before, you know, before that phrase itself. Um, and so, and I do think while there were a lot of problems with it, one of which I'll get to in a second, um, that that there is a place, there is a place for moments of, again, seeking reasons to celebrate. Um, hopefully in, in ways that are a little different from the exclusions that I'll try to mention in a second, but but I think there is value to that. I think to go back to something that Vaughn had said earlier, I don't want to dismiss, I don't dismiss, I hope, the possibility of celebration or the need for it at times. Because, I mean, just right now, I would say we're sort of finding or being reminded that moments where we don't have that, moments where it feels that that everything is more critical or dark or bleak are, are ultimately not sustainable, I think, even for just protest. Protest requires some sense of hope, some sense of possibility, some sense of things worth pushing for or, or seeing as potentially good and ideal. So I do think if there's one thing I would take from the Reagan era as, as in any way a positive, it was the sense that after, yes, a long period of increasing, deepening tumult and division and the different words you all have used today, um, it kind of seemed to remind that there is a place for, for morning as well as for night, for celebration of some kind. The problem, or one of the main problems was that, again, so much of the time, I would argue, the way those narratives have been argued for, and Reagan is a good example of it, don't focus on what could be truly celebrated um, in ways that would be more inclusive. And I think an example of that, as the 80s went along anyway, um, well, two examples of that. One would be a community like Vietnam Veterans Against the War and their sort of legacy into the 80s of, you know, these former soldiers, these veterans who were becoming activists, um, but who were so completely sort of ignored and shunned by the Reagan administration and the kind of power structure of America in the 80s. Um, That's a community worth celebrating, it would seem to me, in a shared sense, and yet they weren't very tellingly. And then another, more complicatedly to be sure, but so worth celebrating were the activists and, and voices who were trying to highlight and, and fight the AIDS epidemic. Um, and obviously that gets into sexuality and, and narratives around it and 
and, and all the, the prejudices that are part of that narrative. But you want to talk about a community who are dealing with one of the most horrific challenges any, any community can deal with, those suffering from AIDS and all those who uh, love them and, and are connected to them. And then the activists, the communities that fought that, that challenged that, that fought for awareness and health care and compassion and understanding um, in the face of prejudice, that's a community worth celebrating collectively. And yet again, you know, the Reagan administration obviously not only didn't celebrate, but literally didn't use the word, didn't talk about that situation at all for almost the whole of his presidency. So I think the problem with the arguments for celebration, which I think have a place, is that so often they not only exclude so many, but exclude communities and, and fights that embody what should be celebrated, that embody the kinds of struggles for a better nation and a better world that we profess are our ideals and are worth celebrating. So that to me is the deep, the deep thing that, that the Reagan era revealed. The need for celebration and, and the appeal of it, but how so much of the time it leaves out not only so many, but precisely those who could be, I would say, celebrated so fully. And I think we see all of that in that 80s moment for sure. I think something that's very telling um, about American patriotism is that in almost every chapter um, of your book and of American history, the critical patriots and the activists are almost always from the same group of people. Um, and the celebratory and mythic, I mean, mythic by your definition is excluding those other groups um, just naturally. But the celebratory is, it, it feels like it's being, it's gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think, I just, I think it's very telling about American history that, that these activists and critical patriots are very, very commonly women, African-Americans, um, non-white, just in general, LGBT, like, I don't know, they've been fighting for a very long time. And it's both very sad and also very reinvigorating to remember that all of these critical patriots have this long-standing tradition of being critical and of challenging the government and the country and the people to live up to the ideals that they say they do. So that can be read as both kind of like a, damn, why are we still fighting? And also as, damn, look, we're still fighting. You know what I mean? <laughs> like good, good on those groups. Um, now, one thing that I wanted to ask about is thinking about how the former president's administration influenced your writing of this book. Um, it seems that a lot has happened since you finished writing the book. And I was wondering if you would have anything different to say or just something to like underline and bold even harder after January 6th and after Trump's final weeks and after the second impeachment, um, does that change your thinking at all or just really solidify it more? 
Uh, yeah, two things come to mind. Um, and, and obviously, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse uh, to be thinking about things that feel like every day <laughs> there's new, there's new news and evolutions and, and echoes and, and complications. Um, that's been true kind of for the last couple projects of mine and makes it feel worthwhile. It makes it feel meaningful. It also feels, yes, overwhelmingly just constant. And I know we all have that feeling in a lot of ways. Um, but I would say two things in particular about this moment that have felt even more amplified in the first couple months of 2021, let's say. On the January 6th thing, there was one quote in particular from, it was a story in the Nation magazine. The reporter was following around one of the groups of insurrectionists. Um, and it was a moment when the the police began to shoot, I think just uh, maybe like rubber bullets, which are you know, not nothing, but they weren't shooting live rounds, but they were in some way firing on these insurrectionists at this particular moment. And a woman who was part of the, the group of insurrectionists uh, said just generally, but the reporter heard it and documented it in his story, it was it. Um, the woman said, they're not supposed to be shooting at us. They're supposed to shoot at Black Lives Matter at those thugs, but they're shooting at patriots. And that did, really did sort of underline for me the way that mythic patriotism works, um, the way that she could see, even while she was literally seeking to, you know, over storm the Capitol and overthrow the government and so on, that I am a patriot and thus I am to be celebrated, not to be you know, shot at or resisted. It's those Black Lives Matter thugs, it's those protesters who are the opposite of that, who are the, the anti-patriots, the non-patriots. So that was a moment that did really underline for me the way mythic patriotism kind of works as a narrative, as an idea um, in, the, in the minds of individuals and in our collective narratives, um, because there at least was debate um, in a lot of ways about whether that event was, you know, patriotic or not, when, you know, to me, it is the furthest possible thing from it. Um, and so I do think that that whole event did underline for me just the, the, the potency of those mythic patriotic narratives and the need to challenge them. Um, and then the broader thing I would say about the last couple of months is it does, I think it does make clear that, that this is never, was never and is never about one figure or one administration or one period. Um, not only because all those things are going to echo even obviously after they have officially blessedly ended, but because what they did, what that figure did, what that administration did, what this last five years did was open up these, these wounds that are longstanding, that are foundational, that are ultimately unresolved and need some sense of, as you all were saying earlier, conversation and, and not resolution exactly, but engagement here in 2021. So I think, I think what we're really, I hope being kind of reminded of is that you know, 2020, for example, the, the protests and the debates and the stakes of the election and everything COVID has brought to the surface, et cetera, all of it is not new and it's not specific. And so it's not going to end. It needs the engagement and the conversation for us to try to push forward through it towards something. And so this whole moment, I think, has, has, has clarified that. And so it does make it feel to me that all these conversations, not just one book, but this podcast and all the work we're all trying to do is a vital part of, of trying to do that work, of what that work needs when it comes to our conversations and our collective engagement. So January 6th underlined it, but more broadly, I would just say 
this is really a moment to not feel like an end of something, but the beginning of something, the possibility of beginning to address what has been so revealed and reminded of and reinforced and amplified over the last five years. Um, a quick note on COVID about what you say of it in, in the book. You highlight how at the protest in 2020, um, most of the protesters were wearing masks because even in this moment of critical patriotism and, and protesting against police brutality and all of these very large things and issues that need, need confronting, that patriotism is underscored by the fact that all of those protesters were, were protecting each other just by wearing masks. And that simple action of wearing a mask during a pandemic is in itself this kind of protective patriotic thing that you can do. And I think it's really interesting thinking about last year and how, how masks became such a political issue that which is which is a whole thing in itself but um I really loved that you kind of underscored that that these patriots who are who are protesting for protections and equity and equality are practicing it as they're preaching it just by wearing that mask I thought that was beautiful yeah thanks I yes and you said it very well too and I think that yeah I mean it is I'm always of two minds right now. And I, I said this earlier, but just to quickly reiterate it, that on the one hand, it feels like separate universes and masks are another example of that. And mm -hmm. the difficulty of trying to think about crossing that gap. But I guess what I try to come back to is a feeling that, that the, to some degree, the gap can be overstated because some of the extreme voices at the other end of that spectrum can be so loud and so dominant and so violent and so destructive like the January 6th insurrectionists, but of whom there were, you know, whatever, a, a few thousand, um, horrible day and a horrible few thousand. But the question is, is there a way to then think about a, a moment like that, those masks at those protests in 2020 as, as something that can embody that larger national community, the goal of it, the push toward it, um, that, that isn't just the spectrum between say them and the few thousand on January 6th, but the idea of something more shared for a lot of us. Um, and I do think it can, I, I have to think that, I guess, if I'm gonna keep trying to do this work and live in this place. Um, we're almost up to an hour and a half now. So I'm guessing we should probably close up, to, um, close up before we take up Ben's whole weekend. Um, is there any final questions either on the book itself or anything that we've uh, talked about so far? Um, well, if not, I'll, there's one final quick question from myself. Um, how has the experience of writing this book changed your perception of what a patriot is, either in a historical context or figures who are around today, you know, be that, you know, Stacey Abrams or whoever you may point to, um, ha has that changed in any way your 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 perception your idea of you know who a patriot is and who isn't or has it solidified anything? I'm just wondering if there was any uh, anything that came out of that. I would say that two quick things that my sense of of who I would point to as exemplary of particularly critical patriotism, which if you put me on the spot and podcasts are good moments to do that, I would I would call 
the version I want to make the case for most fully for sure. And that that idea, which I have been developing for, as I had said at the start, a decade or so, has has continued to evolve, but I would say has remained centrally, um, essentially the contours of it similar um, to kind of my my ongoing idea of that as this thing that needs adding into our conversations, that needs much more awareness as an alternative, as a possibility, as in fact, often the most patriotic way one can be. I think I still believe that. I believed that for a long time. And this project helped me think about the legacies of it and the stories of it and so many figures of it who then, yes, lead up to present people like and Abrams for sure, or or the 1619 Project and its authors and editors, or Kaepernick, or, or many, or Alexander Vindman, who I start the book with, and so many other examples of people I would call exemplary critical patriots. It helped me learn more about the legacy of that, but that idea remained kind of very much what I most wanted to define and celebrate myself as, as, a, as a form of patriotism. What did change a little, or what I really had not thought about as fully as I did in, in trying to do this work was what I was just saying about January 6th, the power, the enduring power of that mythic patriotic narrative. I think I've thought for a long time about sort of exclusion in America. Um, and when I wrote We the People, when I would talk about that book on book talks or the like, people would ask, you know, sort of where does that narrative come from or how does it develop or, you know, why is it resurged so much in our present moment, these exclusionary visions, these exclusionary definitions of America. And I think it was only in doing this project that I started to believe that a lot of that is because so much of what we often mean by patriotism is so tied to those exclusionary visions and narratives. And I think it's that precise interrelationship that makes both those so longstanding and so potent as these exclusionary forces, exclusionary white supremacist definition of the US and the kind of mythic patriotic story and image that goes along with that, I think are not just, have not just been present all along, but have been really intertwined and really consistently dominant in a lot of our national policies and our national debates in ways that I've been able to think about more fully through thinking about the patriotism side of it. I had thought about exclusion for a long time, but I think that exclusion is so tied to what we often mean when we talk about patriotism. And that then brings me back around to the need to argue for an alternative, to say what we often mean, the default we often fall back on of patriotism allows for, in fact, reinforces and amplifies these exclusionary white supremacist visions of us. And so it is crucial to go back to what Vaughn was just nicely arguing, to remember the legacy of all these other Americans particularly Americans of color and, and women and communities outside of that white supremacist dominant voice that have modeled this alternative, this critical patriotic alternative. So I knew I, I knew I supported the alternative and I knew exclusion had been a central thread, but I've really been able in thinking about this to connect exclusion to patriotism as we too often define it. And thus to find another way to try to make the case for critical patriotism as ultimately something much more inclusive as well. Fantastic. Um, so the book is titled Off the Icing, The Contested History of American Patriotism. And I believe it's available for pre-order now. Is that correct? It is. Yeah, it is. And, and um, if folks are interested, uh, my email, which is out there on the web through Fitchburg State, um, if, if people want to get in touch with me, there's a 30% off discount code right now for either hard copy or ebook versions of it that people can check in with me if they'd like to learn more about. Fantastic. And um, we also have a blog, right? 
I do. Yeah. It's called American Studies. It's americanstudier.blogspot.com, daily American Studies blog. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, ben, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been absolutely fantastic. Th- thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks to you all. It was wonderful. Thanks for so many great thoughts and questions and help us keep pushing these conversations forward. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And the be- best of luck with the book. Um, yeah. Congrats. Thank you. Um, right. Well, from from Ben, from uh, Toby, Vaughn, and myself, Simon, thank you very much for listening. And we'll have another podcast for you in the near future. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.